Um, we're going to conclude this series by talking about families, our expanded families, talking about the urban family that God has given us and is found in Scripture. So today we'll be hanging out in Ezekiel chapter 16, just a little bit of that, and then John 19:23 through 27. So if you want to put fingers in your Bibles or get your apps ready or whatever it is you're going to be using to study His Word today, if you don't have a copy of the Bible uh, for your own, if you're if you're lacking one of those, there's one under the seats on the edges of of the rows, and that's free to take as a gift. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, we want you to have one. My life has changed every day when I spend time with Him in His Word, and it's it's a really significant thing. So. We're concluding this series, God in the City. Why a seven-week series on cities? That's something we've been grappling with and thinking through over the course of the spring. And, and we're in this series, we're talking about cities because people are moving to cities at unprecedented rates around the world. Cities are becoming the catch basin of the nations. We are no longer a world that's defined by geographical boundaries whatsoever anymore. People are all over all the time in every place. In fact, if you took every person that was born in a different nation than the nation that they are currently living in and gathered them up under one flag, it would be the fifth largest nation on the planet. People are coming to cities. We don't have to go across oceans anymore to preach the gospel, to learn from other cultures, to see the grandeur of God. It's happening right in our neighborhoods. It's happening in our schools. It's happening in our workplaces. People are moving to cities and God is at work in cities. Through the course of the series, we've also discovered that there's a narrative that says that cities are dying. Most of you have seen it. Most of you have heard it. I think the timing of the series and, and the narrative that was released in the news about Seattle specifically, but the Puget Sound region and the drug em- epidemic that we're struggling under has created this narrative that says cities are dying. Don't go into cities. Cities are dangerous. We should stay away from them. And it makes me think and, and wonder, what is it that we do when we get bad news? Think about that for a minute. When you get bad news like cities are dying, what should we do? I think in those moments we need to stop and apply the gospel to whatever that news happens to be that we've received either personally or about our neighborhood or about our city. Instead of shying away and saying, yeah, you're right, let's... Let's go a different direction. Let's do a different thing. No, we stop and we apply the gospel because cities are coming alive because of Jesus. Imagine for a minute, just stop and imagine and ask the Lord what the resurrected life will look like that comes when followers of Jesus who are filled with the Holy Spirit make intentional choices to live in or spend time in cities. Just close your eyes and imagine for a minute. My friend Richard was up here two weeks ago talking about how his life was resurrected from an alleyway in Pioneer Square with a needle in his arm, now preaching the gospel every day in the city, friends to a thousand others who will follow in his footsteps. When we imagine living and spending time in cities, what is God showing you? How is he increasing your imagination? Because cities are unique. Cities are amplifiers of a message. What gets said in cities about anything gets magnified to the world. It's true. Cities develop, they spin out values, philosophies, they spin out methods and methodologies and merchandise. 
specifically merchandise. I thought this was really interesting. We have a picture to throw up there. Have you ever wondered what happens to the championship hats and the shirts of the team that didn't win the Super Bowl? Do you ever wonder about that? Because that's a thing that happens, and sometimes it happens on the one-yard line. Run the ball. Give it to Marshawn. I mean, give the ball to Marshawn. But, I mean, we were ready to put out a whole bunch of T-shirts and hats that said, Seahawks, Super Bowl champions, 2015. Nope, didn't happen. The Patriots almost had a perfect 19-0 and series if it wasn't for David Tyree and the New York Giants that ended their Super Bowl bid at the last second. What happens to all that merchandise that isn't actually a real thing? There's no 19-0 and Super Bowl champion Patriots team. Hallelujah. <laughs> but where does that stuff go? Well, the NFL's gotten smart. They've started sending that merchandise to places that don't care about football. Like, really, they care about the real football, like with a ball that you kick with your foot. That kind of football they care about. But these shirts... From teams that nobody cares about are shipped to Zambia and Armenia and Nicaragua and Romania. Every season the NFL sends this gear to people that don't have clothes to wear. But cities spin out messages in places all around the world. Cities influence every corner of the globe. And dating back to the earliest days of the church, believers in Jesus Christ proclaimed his message from a city in Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. This isn't a new strategy that God has conjured up. This is what's been in place. And God desires that his His children strategically would place themselves in the very epicenters of where messages are spun out as agents of his good news to the world. If we abandon cities, we're punting on whatever message gets delivered out of them. If we retreat to safer spaces... The way that God has called us to reach the world can't come to be. It just can't unless we engage. And the good news is we're a group of people that are engaging. We are a part of that. Uh, Ben and Alicia coined a phrase that I love, that we are South Everett Foursquare missionaries. right? Oh, and we come to a church service every once in a while too. But that's not the sum of our faith. We're out there doing this throughout the week. There's a gentleman named Gabe Lyons. He heads up an organization called Q Ideas. Their motto at Q is to stay curious, think well, and advance the good. Stay curious, think well, advance the good. These three admonitions give us a framework for what questions to ask, what things to fill our time with as we engage our neighborhoods and our cities. It lets us know how we should engage. What does it mean to stay curious? Hey, what, what's going on in my city? I wonder what's going on in my city. How would you find out what's going on in your city? Maybe pick up a newspaper. Maybe get on the social media feed of the school district or the city. Maybe go outside and see what your neighbor's doing. What's going on in your city? Stay curious. Are we even curious enough to go and find out? Hey, what's going on out there? Can I be a part of what's happening? Stay curious. What does it mean to think well? It means that we're going to ask ourselves, in light of these current happenings, whatever it is that's taking place in our cities, what is what does the Bible have to say about this? What is God's word? What does his spirit have to say about the things that our city is going through? What does it mean to advance the good? It simply means that we're going to think 
strategically about how to apply the grace and the truth of God's word in our city. We live in a context that, that we, have, we have values that we hold to that the culture at large that we live in doesn't hold to. The closer we get to people, the more we're going to have to grapple with exactly how to apply grace and truth. It gets sticky and messy and ridiculously uncomfortable. And I hope it keeps you up at night because if it does, it means you're doing the work right. It kept, it kept Jesus up at night, especially the night before he went to the cross. Boy, was he up when he was thinking strategically about how to apply the grace and the truth of God's word. It kept him up. Does our experience in God's word keep us up? Are we working hard enough to advance the good that it gets sticky sometimes? And how do we work with this family, these people that are coming from all over the place? Today, we know that God in his infinite wisdom, because he is infinitely wise, we know that to be the case. He's designed cities, all the cities of the world in part, to expand our understanding and experience with our global family. That's why cities exist. It's to expand our concepts, our understandings of what it means to be family. And that's messy. And that's unpredictable. And that's uncomfortable. Amen? Isn't it easier to just stick with our own? The people that look like us, think like us, act like us, dress like us, sing like us, believe like us. But where's the fun in that? We can do that in our own strength. We need the Spirit of the Lord to help us understand what it means to live in a global urban family. And so who are they? Who is my global urban family? According to Jesus, as recorded in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark and in Luke, my global urban family was anyone who called on the name of the Lord Jesus and anyone who was willing to do the things that Jesus had asked them to do. That's my family. That is my family. This was referenced in the gospel by Jesus. It was realized at the day of Pentecost in a city where the Lord poured out his spirit on a people. And all of a sudden people are speaking in, in tongues. They're speaking in languages that were familiar to the nations and the cities and the regions around. But they didn't know those languages. But all of a sudden they were given languages to speak because the idea, the concept of family was expanding. It was getting bigger. Expansion and growth equals scary and uncomfortable for me. Does anyone ever feel that way? Expansion and growth equals scary and uncomfortable because I can't rely on me anymore. This is going to be different. They just cut down a bunch of trees in my backyard. That makes me uncomfortable, right? Why? Because now i got to see my neighbors again. Oh, right? I don't like that. It's uncomfortable. So when I am scared or feeling uncomfortable, I'm usually asking the Lord, hey, what are you doing right now? Right? Now you've got my attention. So our primary text this morning about our urban global families will be found in Ezekiel 16, like I said. Uh, This is where the prophet addresses the people who had been carried away into exile in Babylon. Our second passage that we'll hit on lightly is found in the Gospel of John 19, where Jesus speaks to his mother and his best friend about creating a new family in the city. We know that in both texts, God is expanding our understanding, our notion of what it means to be an urban family, and who then actually gets to be a part of that family. So we'll get there in a minute. We'll be in Ezekiel first. Last Sunday, Colleen Grove, everyone say, hey, Colleen. Hey, Colleen. Where are you? There's you in the back there. 
Good to see you. Uh, she brought an outstanding message. In fact, if you haven't listened to her message or Chris Nixon's message from about three weeks ago, set some time aside to listen to both of those messages from the series God in the City because they're intensely missional. They're coming out of their own experiences, Chris and Colleen's experiences of engaging the city. And when we engage the city and God's work in the city, there's stuff to talk about. And there's stuff, there's wisdom to be gleaned. And both these women spoke with wisdom and clarity and purpose. And so make sure you get a chance to listen to their messages. Last week, Colleen brought a message about reframing in our minds and our imaginations our life's most difficult circumstances, the things that we don't want to think about. How do we reframe these things to discover God's purpose right in the middle of where we currently are? Instead of saying, God, I want to be somewhere else to serve you, How do we reframe our minds to see goodness right where he has set us? Even in the places where we feel like God has abandoned us. If you haven't felt abandoned by God yet, that means you're probably not following him as far as he would like you to follow him also. So uncomfortable, scary, abandoned, it's all good. These are all things that Jesus took on himself so that he could say, I understand what you're going through. So it's all good. If you're feeling that way, don't run away from it. Keep going. God's in it. So even in those moments when we're feeling abandoned, God is determined to see us flourish as we help others find flourishing. Colleen's teaching came from the book of Jeremiah, another prophet, but both Jeremiah and Ezekiel, who's the author of our text that we're looking at today, were both prophets of the nation of Israel, God's oldest friends. Prophets, this is important for us to remember. This is something a mentor of mine, Jerry Cook, taught me. Prophets, if you wonder what they do, they see, they hear, and they speak from God's perspective. See, hear, speak from God's perspective. That's the job of a prophet. It's a gnarly job when your job as a prophet is to go counterculturally into a culture that doesn't want to hear what you have to say and say it and see it and hear it. That's hard work. It's messy. It's uncomfortable. It's what he's calling us to do in the city. So Jeremiah and Ezekiel, both of these guys, brought God's message to the same group of people. This is important to remember. Same group of idiots following Jesus around in the desert or following God around in the desert, right? These idiots (laughs) were the God kept sending people to them. Okay, you, you try and you try and you try to get this message across. But they came at different times. Jeremiah spoke to the nation of Israel. He spoke to the southern kingdom of Judah before Judah was taken by the Babylonians to Babylon. That was a long journey. That was a 900-mile, four-month trek through the desert to become captive. So before that happened, Jeremiah spoke to them and warned them of the things that were to come. Ezekiel prophesied to those same people, but he did it while they had spent time in Babylon. Once they had arrived there, that's when Ezekiel spoke to them. So Jeremiah before, Ezekiel during, and no matter the mess, God is with us. No matter where we are, as idiots wandering after him, (laughs) I feel like that sometimes. I'm just an idiot wandering after you, Lord. But you love me anyways, right where I'm at. God's always with us, whatever mess he's always willing and able to speak to us, right? All this history is critically important as we understand the full narrative of Scripture, the the creation, the fall, the redemption, the renewal. We have to understand these historical contexts because they, they help us see the whole picture. 
in the history of Israel's civil war, because that's what was going on at this time. The southern kingdom and the northern kingdom had split and experienced different seasons of exile, one in Assyria, one in Babylon, but they were all a mess. God was with them in the mess. He was speaking to them in their mess. All of this can be found in First and Second Kings. If you want to go and take some time and look at where this story unfolds, what these prophets were speaking about, it's in First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. Those are the historical books of the Bible where we figure this stuff out. And if we're going to be people who stay curious, right? What's going on? If we're going to be people that think well, how does the word apply? And if we're going to be people who advance the good with the going of our feet, we must stay grounded in the truth of God's word. You can't go out into this culture anymore without a firm understanding of God's word and get very far at all. We have to be grounded in his word because without it, the world's going to think that the Bible has nothing to say about the most challenging issues we face today. That's what Gabe Lyons talks about at Q. Stay curious, think well, advance the good. It's all grounded in God's word. All the sticky issues that we face as a culture, all the family problems that we have, all the disagreements that we have, but they're not new to us. The nation of Israel had family problems. They were having a civil war. Our world, our neighborhood, our families have family problems. Anyone got family problems? Anyone got a family problem? Just email my mom. It's all good, right? Just eat, you know, mom will take care of it. But we all have family problems. We have things that are going on. Ezekiel was raised up in the middle of this particular mess in this family crisis to do three specific things. He was called to bring correction to the nation for their actions. Number one. Number two, he was called to mourn sin with his people. He was an Israelite. He was one of the exiled. So he was called to bring correction, but then called to mourn with the people because he had stuff in his life too. And then thirdly, he was called to give hope that this won't always be how it is. It'll be different one day. This is still our mission today, right? To bring correction to the body, please, not the world. If they haven't asked for it, if they haven't signed up for it, don't go call people sin out. They haven't signed up for Jesus yet. That's a family issue. We call each other out. We get ourselves humble. And then the world says, wow, that's a compelling group of people that call out their own sin. We don't even do that. Right? But they're saying, call yourselves out. Call yourselves out for your mess. Mourn your sin and then look to hope. That's the mission today. And Ezekiel in, in 16, chapter 16, boy, was he letting the people have it. But he also gave him some hope in the process. If you're ever in a legitimate need of grieving your sin, if you just really want to feel bad about the depth of your disparity, read Ezekiel chapter 16 start to finish a couple times. I mean, you will just mourn your sin. You will wail and cry and go through boxes of tissues. It'll give you reason to change your behavior. It'll give us a reason to change our behavior. It's a good read in that regard. But it's scary and uncomfortable. I'll just warn you of that. Because in this chapter, Ezekiel uses themes of adultery and prostitution to describe Israel's behavior towards God. It gets ugly. It's explicit. It's R-rated. It's difficult to swallow this passage of Scripture. You wonder, is this even supposed to be in the Bible? Like, this is, this is kind of, this is, this is edgy. But it's good because the Lord's saying, look, You've got heart issues, and I'm after your heart, not your wallet. 
It's difficult to swallow, but also sheds great light. It sheds a great grace on God's people. And in this text, Ezekiel chapter 16, God is using these themes of city, these themes of family, to show us something different about how big our family really is. It answers the questions, who's in our family? What has God done to bring us together? And how should we live in light of the fact that God has brought us together? Amen? How should we live in the light of the fact that we are more than just people who look like us, think like us, act like us, dress like us, worship like us? The family is bigger than that. It's expanding. It's scary. It's uncomfortable. And that's what God is calling us into. Throughout this series, we've made references. I've made references to a city mentor of mine, a professor, a city missionary named Ray Baki. He's a man who spent 30 years living in Chicago, and while living in the inner city, he realized the Bible's urban blueprint from Genesis all the way to Revelation. He spent time in his city, and he saw something. Ray chooses to read his Bible in a way that challenges his context. He goes to a context and says, what is happening here? Is God actually at work here? Does the Bible have answers for these things? Because when Ray, growing up in a farm up near Mount Baker, went to Sunday school, went to church, went to Seattle Pacific University, was doing all the things a good Christian should do, he read in the Word that he was supposed to go into a city. And he went into the city and he had a crisis of faith. Because what he was seeing, he didn't even know how to ask questions about what he was seeing yet. He didn't know where to look for things. And so that drove him back to the Word. And going back to the Word, he discovered, oh my goodness, God has answers for all this stuff. And he wrote this book, A Theology as Big as a City, and it's a fantastic, challenging read. I've been reading it for ten years, and I'm still trying to wrap my mind around it. Because it's complex, like cities are complex. But... Ray got me asking this question. What does the Bible have to say about what is happening in front of me right now? I think we have a picture. Can you put that picture up there? That one. Do we ever just sit? I mean, there's a part of Scripture where Jesus sat over Jerusalem. That's Chicago. But Jesus stared out over Jerusalem and then he wept for it and he went and died for the city. But do we ever go sit at the edge of our cities? The Hubers have a home. They're not here. Maybe I'll just invite you. I'm sure it's okay with Marley (laughs) if you just go to her house sometime and just sit at her coffee table and gaze at the city. What are you doing in there, Lord? What are we supposed to be doing? How do I understand my family? What's happening right in front of me? See, the wisdom of the Bible speaks to all of these challenges we face in the city because Ray stayed curious. He thought well, he advanced the good in the city of Chicago. And we'll borrow from his observations this morning from Ezekiel chapter 16. Don't worry, we're not going to get into all the other stuff. You can read that later. There's two verses, 16 verse 3 and 46. I'm going to read them together because it speaks about family and city. It ties these concepts together in the midst of the rebuking and the correcting of Israel's unfaithfulness to God that Ezekiel, that he was bringing. Ray points out that the prophet was using these themes of family and city together. It says in Ezekiel 16, 3 and verse 46, This is what the Sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. Your ancestry and your birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite, your mother was a Hittite. 
Those aren't cuss words. Those are like places and people of origins. Your older sister was Samaria. Oh, your older sister was a city who lived in the north of you with her daughters. And your younger sister who lived in the south of you with her daughters was Sodom. God in his infinite wisdom has designed the cities in the world to expand our understanding and our experience with our urban and our global families. Observation here, we run into a lot of problems when we live into the delusion that we are more holy than we are. Ever run into problems when you get to that place thinking you're better than you are, more holy than you are? This was the root issue of the sin that drove the northern kingdom into exile in Assyria, that drove the southern kingdom into exile in Babylon, was this belief that we are just wholly better than you. All you other people that are around, you're not our family. You're just the enemy. They were stuck in this limited understanding because Israel had this delusion concerning their pedigree, their heritage, their family line. They had delusions about it. They were drinking the nationalistic Kool-Aid. One of the most dangerous group of people that exist anymore are the nationalists. The ones that think in any nation, not just ours, but the ones that think that they are the best and everyone should bow to them. This was the problem of Israel. The nation of Israel found its pride and its identity in a city of Jerusalem It was where God dwelt in the temple. This is a holy place. And it was right and it was good. There was nothing wrong about that, except for the the fact that the delusion said that the Israelites held on to, that this is our city. God loves us exclusively. This is for us. And God's reminder through Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 3 and 46, is that, hey, there were others in this land, in this city before you. See, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem was located in, within the context of the promised land that the Israelites were tasked with driving the other people out of. Go back to the book of Joshua, right? When Joshua takes the Israelites out of the desert where Moses had led them for 40 years, across the river, Jordan, and into the promised land. And there was big giants in the land, right? There was the Hittites and the Amorites and the Jebusites, and it was their job to drive the people out. But not only did Israel struggle to drive out those nations of the land during Joshua's day, it wasn't until King David came when they actually laid claim to the city. But then they got a little greedy because it was all about them. So Ezekiel, now fast forward a couple hundred years, they've been in the city, they built the temple, all the things happened that were supposed to happen, but then the people's hearts got far from God because they just got comfortable in the place where they were. So they're next to the river in Babylon, weeping and mourning their sin, and Ezekiel comes to them, and he reminds them, in a paraphrase of what we just read here, He says, and you know what, these other cities, Samaria to the north and Sodom to the south, remember when your great, this is the tough part, remember when your great, 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 great grandpappies, remember, and grandmoms, all those people, remember when they intermarried with the Hittites and the Amorites and the Jebusites, see where this is going? Take one of those ancestry DNA swabs of the cheek, people of Israel. 
You're just like them. Oh, no. You mean all these other people are part of my urban global family? Oh, no. See, God's family isn't great because of its ethnic purity. Mm. We're great because God has taken us all the compromised people of the world and he's pulled us into his kingdom just as we are. That's what makes it great. We're the unwanted people of the world. Psalm 68, 5 and 6. David says about the father, a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling in Jerusalem. He's a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. God sets the lonely in families. He leads out the prisoners with singing. But the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. Ray says, The city, as seen from God's perspective, now takes shape in the form of a family system. And everyone today should know how significant family systems are. And, And don't we know how significant they are? I think those who know it the most are the ones that aren't in it yet. They know how significant it is what they don't have. Right? That's why he put us here. Regional cities are sisters and suburbs are daughters in God's kingdom perspective. So in Chicago, Ray found his own context that looked like this. Jerusalem, right? With Samaria to the north, the younger sister. An actual city, if we have a picture. Jerusalem, right, was a city. To the north of Jerusalem was Samaria. To the south of Jerusalem was Sodom. And the, the Jews despised these lands and these people. But then Ray said, hey, I got a system like that. So he said, well, what if, what if Jerusalem was Chicago? And what if my younger sister to the north was Milwaukee? And what if my older sister to the south was St. Louis? What if we were a family? What if this applied in the United States in the context of cities also? Well, how are we treating those people? And what Ray Bakke noticed in the city of Chicago was that Chicago was taking all of its sewage and dumping it into the rivers that fed the water systems of Milwaukee and St. Louis. Yikes! That's not a very loving thing to do to our sisters and our nieces and nephews who are the suburbs of those cities. Really interesting, Ray. Thanks. Maybe I'll apply that a little further west. Throw up the next map. Here we are. We're actually one of the sisters, right? If Seattle in this region is the is the sister, there's another one. We're one of, we're the northern sister, right? Of Everett from Seattle. There's a southern sister called Tacoma. There's cities. We have sisters. We have relationships with one another. Seattle has a set of younger siblings. Tacoma by 14 years and 33 miles to its south. Everett by 42 years and 25 miles to the north are its younger siblings. Interesting how family systems work together. Back in 1889, the city of Seattle had a really, really bad day. A really, really bad one. It was called the Great Seattle Fire. Tacoma and Everett's older sister had a really bad day. And when this fire ransacked 36 blocks of the famed Pioneer Square that you can go and visit today, the rising smoke was visible from both Tacoma and from Everett. 
That's how bad the fire was. And it burned and it burned and it burned. And, and the sisters from Everett that wasn't even established yet as a city and the sisters from Tacoma that wasn't quite yet established as a city came rushing to the aid of the older sister, the established city of Seattle in 1889. I would suggest that the younger sisters of Tacoma and the younger sister of Everett have benefited greatly over time by responding to the need of their sister. Wouldn't you say? And we have to take care of each other because we share stuff between Everett and Tacoma. We share a light rail system, the sounder, the train that goes back and forth and back and forth. We say, share major commerce with the Boeing company and Amazon and Microsoft and all of these companies. We, we share these things. If, if we have a drought, we're going to share the consequences of the drought as the water does or doesn't flow out of the Cascade Mountains. We share a system of ports, the Port of Everett, the Port of Seattle, the Port of Tacoma. All of those things have to work in concert with each other because if they don't, nations from all around the Pacific Rim will stop sending their resources because it's just a headache. They're like, nah, that's it, we're staying in L.A. and San Francisco because Seattle, you can't get it together with Everett and Tacoma in terms of your port systems. We need each other. We're family. Isn't it interesting? So just like Jerusalem had moms and dads, right? The Jebusites and the Hittites and the Amorites, all these nations that were there to be driven out. There was a people that was driven out just north of Everett. The Tulalip tribes who established themselves just north of the city of Everett before Everett was ever a city in 1855. That's mamas and papas. How do we, as God's global urban family, treat our First Nation people? Besides buying fireworks from them on July 2nd for the 4th. Ha! Nuts! I wish God didn't talk about stuff like this, but he did. It's scary. It's uncomfortable. It means he's in it. We have daughter cities of Everett. We have suburbs like Muckleteo and Marysville, Snohomish, Lake Stevens. Our city has neighborhoods, Casino Road and Lowell and Holly. In God's infinite wisdom, he has designed the cities of the world in part to expand our understanding and our experience with our urban global family. It applied in Jerusalem, it applied in Chicago, it applied in Seattle, which leads to Everett, which leads to Casino Road. Beautiful. God says, be with your family. And how we treat each other matters. That's the other thing that God is saying in Ezekiel. How you treat each other really, really matters. And right now, our Muckleteo School District is having a discussion about redrawing the boundary lines of the school district and where kids will go to certain high schools. And this boundary, this rearrangement, would take some students who are currently attending Mariner High School, just right down the street, and would have them go to Kamiak High School as early as next year. I sat in a meeting with city leaders right here about 10 days ago, and we started discussing what this might do. Because Kamiak's a good school. It's a great school. Mariner's a good school. It's a great school. Different cultures at Kamiak. And the families in our neighborhood are a little bit concerned about what's going to happen when students from Mariner are going to school at Kamiak. Will they be received as sisters? Will they be received as family? 
Or where our limited understandings of homogeneous culture keep us from being the family that we're supposed to be. It's so cool how this applies right here. How God's words has answers for what's going on today. That's because it's spirit-breathed, God's word. And when we turn to it, in these really difficult passages, we find stuff. But we don't find it until we go out and see it. And they go back and read the word and be like, oh my gosh, it's there. We have to connect the questions and the answers by reading the word and reading our cities. Experiencing our word, experiencing our cities. If cities are family, then this tension that we're dealing with right now that exists within our schools between Mariner and Kamiak, if we're a part of this city, then we're part of the family, and therefore we're responsible for helping to dream up solutions to some of the tensions that we're facing. We get to do that as South Everett Foursquare missionaries. We get to be a part of those conversations. Thank you for employing me. Let's get real practical for a minute. So I can come during the week and be a part of those discussions on our behalf. We are, we are doing this. I just get to go be the representative. If you ever want to come to one of those meetings, just let us know. Because they're exciting to see what's happening right here. We're responsible for helping come up with some of these solutions. I don't have a silver bullet answer to any of this, but I do know that the solutions exist on the other side of greater awareness and greater relationships. That's where, that's where the answers are. We gotta, we gotta move into it, right? Got to move into those situations where we're experiencing things we don't want to be aware of. You ever like, I didn't want to know that. You ever heard, you felt that before? Ignorance is bliss until it isn't. This is our city. We're responsible. Greater relationships. Ezekiel's prophetic picture of a city culminates with Jesus. It's the other cool thing about the word. Everything points to Jesus from the very beginning to the very end. It all points to him. John 19, 23 through 26. Jesus was hanging on a cross outside of the city gates of Jerusalem. That's the context. He's there. He's just gone through 12 unimaginable hours. Pain physical pain, torment, torture, things that none of us could even imagine or begin to imagine or experience. But here he is, right in the middle of all of this, hanging on a cross, outside the gates of a city. This took place 600 years after Ezekiel prophesied to the people who called that city home. 600 years later, the story about our bigger, expanded, global, urban family continues. 600 years later, after the prophecy. It says, beginning in 19, verse 23. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them. With the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven into a piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened as the scripture might be fulfilled. They said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So the soldiers, this is what the soldiers did. And near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, wife of Clopas. In Mary Magdalene, when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved, who was John, 
standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her to his home. Even in the context of excruciating pain and sacrifice, while Jesus was still achieving victory for us over death, he was blending new families. Hey, hey mom, hey, here's your new son. (laughs) Found him in the gutter three years ago. But he's your new son now. Hey, you, it's your mom. Just tell everybody, email your mom. It's going to be awesome, John. You're going to love it. Mary will take care of all of it for you. That didn't happen. But he was blending new families 600 years after the prophecy. We find ourselves approximately 1,986 years after that. God is still blending new families. And it's still hard. Because we still all of us give in to, at some point, nationalistic tendencies, which says, my way is the highway. So get up off my highway before I run you over. We all feel like that sometimes. I want it my way now. But Jesus says, uh-uh, it's not going to be like that. We're going to do it different. Your family's bigger than you thought it was. And all these people you've been me treating, you, you ain't going to find the kingdom without them. Cities, global, urban, factories of new relationships. It's beautiful. And we are in it. We're getting to do it. We get to keep doing it together as a family. You know, Katrina and I were away last weekend. We're part of this thing with some other Foursquare pastors. Uh, ben was a part of this as well. Uh, they call it West Coast Multiply, and it's all about planting new churches and new parts and movements of the gospel. And, and this congregation is going on 25 years, and it's had different iterations along the way. But we have a strong interest. Our movement, the Foursquare family, has a strong interest in taking more of the gospel to more parts of the city. So they're training up Foursquare pastors and leaders to think strategically about how to work with city governments, how to work with schools, how to get out of your building, and just build relationships with people that will lead to the hope of the gospel. But that takes a minute sometimes. It takes a long minute to help somebody get from a place where they just don't even give a rip about Jesus to committing their life to him. I mean, God can do some pretty miraculous things in a minute, but for most people, once they're in their 20s and 30s and 40s, it takes relationship, sustained relationship without agenda, putting on display the good works of God so that those who see it will point to him and say, oh, there you are. I've been looking for you in all the wrong places. Paraphrase of Matthew 5:16. But that's exactly what we're trying to do is get people to look at God. Look at him. Look at what we're doing with Casino Road kids. Look at what we're doing with hand in hand. Is it public, that thing? Is it? In, the, in tonight? So we're going to... Today's. Okay, so we'll break it here. So Hand in Hand, which has been struggling with a, a, a space that is insufficient, has just been gifted, almost gifted, rented really cheaply, a real house for kids to go to. Right? Amen. The location's a secret, but the work of God is very public. It is. So people are going <laughs> so there's this family that they don't even know Jesus yet and they're and I they're literally and so we're talking the other day at the literally oh you know Casino Road you're up there right I'm like yeah they go I help there I help at this place called Hand in Hand do you know about it I'm like yeah 
That's the beautiful thing about these ministries. We invite people that don't trust Jesus yet into the work of Jesus that they might trust him through the work. Right? This is a beautiful thing. So Katrina and I were away at this thing last weekend, and together we're imagining new ways of bringing the hope of the gospel to the city's current contexts. And I'll just say this as we close, that I'm spending a considerable amount of time, and I've shared this already a little bit, considerable amount of time between the Sundays. That's always a question. What, Pastor, what do you do all week? <laughs> like, what do you do all week? <laughs> Come and hang out. I'll show you. But a considerable amount of time between the Sundays, spending a lot of time that this congregation pays us for going around and asking questions like, what do you need? And this week I was sitting at the Starbucks right up the street here on 99 and Casino Road, and I was talking to one of the City Life kids, and I said, what, what do you think about all this, about approaching our city? And he gets this, he gets this thousand-yard stare, and he just looks out the window. And he starts talking about all the beautiful things that will be on this road and the things that won't anymore. And I'll share more about the specific context later. But when I asked him how to reach the city, he simply said, keep building relationship. Keep building relationship. And by the grace of Jesus, we find our urban global family through the context of relationship. It's why God brought us together, scary, uncomfortably close in cities, so that we could spin out a different message to the neighborhood, to the city, right? I've got this this dream right now that says that one day the mayor of Everett's going to come and bring the mayor of Puyallup or the mayor of Yakima or the mayor of Bellingham or mayors from different places and say, I got to take you somewhere. I got to show you something. I got to show you this crown jewel of Everett on Casino Road. I got to show you the leaders that are coming up out of this place. And he's doing it. He's doing it because these 18 year old kids are taking thousand yard stairs down a road and saying, it will not always be like this. Best part of my whole week. I mean, this guy's like prophesying like the new Ezekiel. But God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he does that in the context of family. So, Lord Jesus, we, uh, we thank you that you've placed us in a city. We thank you that you're writing a new narrative. We thank you that the kids are leading the way. Lord, we are fearfully and wonderfully made by you who created us. Lord, let us not for a minute given the, the temptation to view the calling that we've been given through the lens of our own strength, through the lens of our own accomplishment. Lord, let it just be a thousand-yard gaze off into your goodness to see your kingdom come. You've been listening to a podcast from South Everett Foursquare Church. For more information about us, please visit us online at www.southeverett.org.